Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Good job, AJ. Uh, thank you, Carol, for reading, those, uh, reading the Word of God for us. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you've uh, looked forward to something for so many years, and then when you finally have the opportunity, your, your knees get really feeble. Uh, that's how I feel right now. Um, it, I, I love this place. Um, so please pardon me if I get a little teary-eyed today. Um, Asbury changed my life. God used Asbury to uh, invest so much in my life, and I see so many dear people who've invested so much in me. Uh, everything I do today is possible because, uh, of course, of my parents, of course, of the wonderful people God has placed in my life, but especially because of the faculty and staff here. Um, so for those of you students who hear alumni come back and brag about Asbury and about their faculty, please bear with me for another minute. Um, I thank God for, um, I see so many faces that have invested so much in me, especially Steve Siemens. Um, when I was just my first year of my master's program, he pulled me into a room with a couple of other guys and would meet with us every week uh, at a noon hour. Um, and we bore our hearts, no secrets, just laid everything. And he just uh, beautifully just took all of those and would bring them to the Lord. You know, I think of, uh, I don't know about you, but I, when, now that I'm graduated and I'm away, I live in New York, and sometimes I get homesick for Asbury. And I'll go on YouTube and watch Dr. Callis's sermons. Just, I've probably, I think I've watched everything that's on YouTube that Callis has ever put out. Well, Asbury's ever put out. So thank you for all of that. Uh, so many of you uh, have done so much. And I thank God for each of you. Uh, all right, let's go to God's word. I just have a very simple message on my heart today. Um, it is from this beautiful passage that we see of this post-resurrection account of Jesus. Uh, so Jesus appears to his disciples, and we're told, at least in John's account, that this is the third time Jesus has come. And so here we have in John's gospel in chapter 21, Jesus has already appeared, and we have this great commission in the gospel of John, which uh, if you've heard Tennant speak of is, of course, in John 20, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you this amazing Trinitarian picture that we have in John 20, but then what do you do with this chapter 21, right? So Jesus has come, he has given his life for us, he died, the powers of darkness, they thought that he had, that they had conquered uh, the Son of God, and yet, uh, again, I'll quote Tennant a few times, please bear with me, as the cross teaches us that God does some of his greatest work under a cloak of failure, right? So, and that's precisely what we have in the story. Peter is back fishing, and he is such a leader that he takes a group of disciples with him. They went out, and they were told they caught nothing all night. Again, very reminiscent of the Synoptic Gospels account of the call narrative of the, gospel, of the disciples, which we don't really see in John's Gospel, but uh, calls into memory the very account that we see in the early part of the Synoptic Gospels. And, of course, Jesus says, throw you on the other side. They caught, oh, you thought I speak fast? I've always spoken fast. And when I moved to New York, I started speaking faster. All right, so I've got like 25 minutes, so hold on to your seats, okay? I'm going to speak really fast today. I know it's a little odd for Kentucky people to speak this fast, but uh, 
All right, so they land on the sh shore and they see this fire going, burning coals and fish on it. See, first thing I want us to notice in this story is just the physicality of the resurrection. Right? Jesus appears multiple times over a period of 40 days to the disciples. And uh, post-resurrection, we're told he uh, continued to appear to the disciples about 40 days before Pentecost, of course, and uh, before he ascended. So we know that Jesus kept appearing, but as uh, Dr. McPhee shared in the doctoral seminar last week, I read his transcript, uh, the, this is the same Jesus, yet it's a different type of Jesus, right? Jesus is walking through closed doors, appearing to the disciples. And, uh, uh, you know, and of course, you have the miraculous Jesus from before who walks on water, but it's the same Jesus, but he's not with them 24-7 like he used to be. He appears and then he disappears. He appears to the people that have known him and loved him, and yet it takes a second for them to recognize, oh, it is the Lord. So it's the same Jesus, and yet there's something different. And so, uh, you know, it, we might be tempted to I don't know about you, conclude or think of this appearance of Jesus like uh, Casper. I don't know about you, I think of Casper like, ooh, he's walking through walls and kind of appearing, or maybe of, I don't know, the other person I think of, I don't know why, maybe because I'm thinking of Casper and White, I think of Olaf, you know Olaf? If you don't know Olaf, I don't know how to help you, you need to watch some TV. But you know, it's the idea, you know, Olaf can go to Florida because he would... It'll be a suicide trip. You all know that, right? So, I mean, we think it's these, like, appearance as though there is this disembodied reality. But we're told in this passage is repeated that this is actually a physical resurrection. There's this physicality to Jesus. In fact, in just the previous chapters, we're told that Jesus appears to the disciples. Of course, Thomas was not there, and of course, they see Jesus. Jesus says, it is me. Go ahead, touch, put your finger in my hands, in my wounds. And of course, Jesus shows up to Thomas and uh, tells, come, you know, come put your finger in my side. It is the real me. So you have this very physical, and we have this wonderful declaration of the majesty and the divinity of Christ that we have uh, in the scriptures, especially from Thomas, right, saying, my Lord and my God. In fact, last week, uh, I serve in a church also. I, I serve as a teaching pastor at an Alliance Church in White Plains, and there's this man, I love this man, he just got recently saved, radically saved. He's in his feet, he's in his 50s. He's a Lebanese-Armenian, uh, didn't serve God all his life, and then in the last couple of years, just got radically saved. And he was telling me on Sunday, he said, I was talking to this Jewish guy who's very secular, who doesn't really uh, uh, know God, and he said, uh, that the resurrection thing about Jesus, you don't really believe this, do you? You really believe that Jesus resurrected physically? And uh, it's besides the point of the arguments of the faith that I want to discuss here, but I want you to notice this, the way this man is communicating the story to me. All of a sudden, his face had pain in his face. He started tearing up. His eyes started to squint together and his eyebrows furrowed. And he said, he said to the other person, who was like, please don't talk about my Jesus like this. Right? So now we could say, yes, you have to approach this intellectually and analyze it. That's all true. But I want you to notice how that one comment affected this newborn Christian so much that he felt pain that somebody would attack his Jesus like this. And sometimes we forget that our faith is so, you know, it's so personal, it's so real that when someone attacks our faith, it's okay for us to respond with pain, right? It's not just an intellectual defense for, the, for our faith, but notice, and part of the reality is that this was a very physic, the physical re uh, resurrection of Jesus. 
So it's not an illusion, right? If it was an illusion, then as soon as Peter jumped into the water, water would have splashed in his face and he would have opened up and he would have realized this is not a mirage, but this is a very physical reality that we see of the resurrection. But notice another thing, that Jesus is on the shore He has fire going, so he's not Olaf. He's not going to melt away, right? He has fire going. He has fish and bread on the fire. Here's my question. Ever wondered where did Jesus get this fish from? So these guys are out there toiling all night and catch nothing. So there's these expert fishermen out there. And so we don't know what kind of fishing rod Jesus had. We don't know if he had a fishing rod. But I'll tell you, if I was Nemo, I would say, oh, Jesus is hungry. I'll find a way to get to shore. You know what I mean? I will go and sacrifice myself so Jesus can have a meal. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know how Jesus got the fish. But the point is, he had some nice uh, fried Nemo on the grill I don't, know, I don't know if I messed up, with, messed up anybody's theology. I'm glad there's no kids here. But the idea is Jesus has fish there, right? He has fish on the grill. But there's something else that I really want us to notice, and this is the heart of what I want to talk about. Notice how he addresses the disciples. He reaches out to them and he says, in the NIV, of course, friends, in other translations, children. But that word is friends. There's no bitterness. I don't know about you, but if... if you know, I'm glad I'm not Jesus, but if I invested my whole life in a few people and gave them everything I had and loved them and showed them the face of God and did everything, and then in my greatest point of need at the cross, all of them desert me, and then after I resurrect, I show them myself, and still they're not there, and they're back fishing, I'd be a little bitter. You know what I mean? But there's no bitterness in Jesus. He just says, friends, and he calls out to them. Notice, he woos them. He calls them friends or these little children. It's like he goes to them, right? He goes to the sea where they are fishing. He calls out to them. He initiates the calling and the recalling, if you will, over and over again. He does miracles, right? He tells them to cast the net on the other side. He provides for them. He gives them food. He lights a fire because he knows these guys have been on the boat all night. They must be cold. They must be wet. They must be so shivering. So let's get a fire going to warm them up. And then he makes breakfast for them, and he says, come have breakfast. He feeds them. But there's something else here. Notice he says, come Bring me some of the fresh catch that you just have. Now, I don't know about you. If I have nice, uh, you know, t- uh, sea bass on the grill, I wouldn't be looking for tilapia. You know, you know what I mean? He, but Jesus says, bring me some of your fresh catch. Why does Jesus need their fresh catch if he's already got Nemo frying on the pan? He doesn't need their fish. He's the master of the seas. If one little fish came and, you know, could found its way on a little grill, he could get every one of the fish. But the reason he does that is he doesn't put them away. It's as though he's saying, yes, I have fish already, but give me what you have in your hand. I will not reject you. I am not discouraging you. I'm not pushing you away. You give me what you have, and he receives them. He doesn't judge them, and he welcomes them around the fire. My friends, here's the point. You cannot exhaust the love of God, right? You cannot quantify the grace of God and expend all of it. No matter how far we run, no matter how where we find ourselves back at, God keeps coming after us over and over again. I don't know if you've heard of Francis Thompson. He penned the famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, in 1859. 
and he was known to be one of the best poets of the English language. In fact, Oscar Wilde said, why can't I write poetry like him? I mean, of course, his poems, The Hound of Heaven especially, greatly influenced C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and many. So he was born in a Catholic home. Uh, his parents wanted him to go to med school, but he didn't really care for it. He dropped out. He wanted to be a writer, but nobody encouraged him. Finally, he just found himself on the streets. He was homeless. He was with prostitutes. He got addicted to opium. But in the midst of all of this, he grabbed a piece of paper, wrote a poem, sent it to a Catholic magazine. They saw that there was something of uh, value here, and they invited him to come into their home uh, to care for them. And so they nourished him and cared for him, and they eventually get, got him into a rehab place where in a moment of sobriety, he penned the Hound of Heaven poem. Now, this poem is about how God's love just keeps coming after us over and over again. Some of you might be familiar with the uh, poet. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. It's really about how this poet fled from God, but how God's love kept chasing after him. Recently, uh, they, uh, I think one of our Asbury University profs, along with others, did a modern adapt, read ad adaptation of this. And I'm going to read you just the first part and the last part of this poem. Here's how it goes. I heard a story once, an incredible story, an amazing story. It told of one who is relentlessly faithful and loves with an unwavering love. It was said that he sorrows over broken people. It was said that he tirelessly pursues each lost one, never stopping, never giving up until, until. But if I let him in, what would I have to give up? What would I have left that I could say was mine? Anyway, it was just a story I heard once, just a story. But if it was only a story, why did thoughts of him trouble my dreams? Glimpses in the moonlight, glimmers in the starlight, whispers in the midnight breeze. Gradually, the whispers became a sound perceptible only late at night when all the world was silent and asleep, except for me and my pounding heart and the distant sound coming closer. Soon, I could hear it by day as well, stronger, constant, and unhurrying. And now I could tell what it was. It was the beat of footsteps, footsteps down the streets, footsteps on the sidewalk, footsteps outside the door, footsteps coming. He was coming. The one I heard about was coming for me. And so I fled. I fled. I chose the surest methods and swiftest means. I fled. I traveled down endless miles looking for escape. I fled. I sought refuge in forbidden pleasures and tried to drown out the footsteps beneath the clamor of the train. And for the rest of the poem, the poet talks about how he just went this, this spiraling downward into this uh, out of control until he found himself on a deathbed of suicide. And then he says, but then... But then, in utter desolation, like a gentle breeze that washes over and around me, I felt the tenderness of his presence. I had no fight left, so I finally listened. Which of those you fled to loved you, I heard him say. And my heart answered, none but you, only you. And then he said to me, you will have no rest until you rest in me. Come take my hand and rise. In the darkness of my gloom, I saw this outstretched hand, and I heard these words, Though you would not see it, I am the one who you have been seeking all your life. In that moment, after all the endless miles and all the fruitless searching, I finally quit my running and reached out to the one who had sought me for so long. The lost one was finally found. He required nothing, nothing beyond acceptance. The peace I had longed for but never known flooded my heart. And in having nothing of my own, nothing but his love, I found everything I had lacked. 
I was finally complete, finally at rest in him. It is these same sentiments that was echoed a few years before this by Robert Robinson in 1758 when he wrote another hymn. And it was said, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let, my, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts about. So they eat together. And Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What does it mean for Simon Peter and the disciples to go back to fishing? Of course, the gospels, the synoptic gospels are quite clear that it was in the context of fishing that Jesus calls the disciple. And in each of those accounts, the response is so direct and so uh, just jarring. They say at once they left everything and they followed him. Now, of course, John's gospel doesn't capture that narrative. But John's audience would have remembered, called to remembrance the very imagery that is being raised here. And here at the very end, at the after resurrection, they are back to fishing. So the question, do you love me more than these? There, there are multiple theories on what the these are. Some say, well, uh, the these are, of course, the other disciples. You know, Peter made these bold proclamations, if all will desert you, oh Lord, I will never desert you. And so this is a mo moment for Jesus to ask him and for him to just own up and humble himself and not be so self-confident. Uh, but it's a little difficult for us to wrap our minds around it because what is Jesus doing? Trying to create competition between disciples and say, ooh, who can love me more than the other one? I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? But more so, I mean, there, or it could be that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me, Peter, more than you love these disciples? Or it could be that Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these fishes? Now, do you love me more than fish? Now, fishing was his job, right? This is what he thought he was good at. It was the familiar, it yields money. And so, in many ways, it could be Jesus asking, are you going back to that which God called you from? So it's in some ways, in Jesus even providing this miracle of 153 fish, which at that time was all of the different varieties of the fish, Jesus is probably asking, is success what you're really after, Peter? Because if you want to be successful, here you are. You can go be as successful as you want. Just sell all these fish and put it toward your 401k and then retire happily, right? Do you love me more than success? See, these are all of the things that are of the past. And then God met you in that very moment that he called you out of. Remember for Peter? After he had fished all night, caught nothing, he was dejected, he was depressed, he had caught nothing, and he was at the seashore washing the nets, because that's what you do, so that all the gunk is out of the nets, so that you can fish again the next day. And in the moment of that depression, and the moment of that loneliness, in the moment of that failure, Jesus goes to him, finds him, says, follow me, leaves everything and follows Jesus. And now... In the moment of weakness, in the moment of quiet and sadness, and in the moment of not surety, we find him back at the very things that he once left. Have you heard the story of Pedro? This is a New Yorker story. Pedro was, uh, you know, the economy is so bad these days, and uh, he didn't have a job, and he was going to be evicted, and uh, he was looking for a job everywhere, and uh, finally, he got a job interview. And so he pulls, he drives into the city, he's circling around, circling around, trying to find a parking spot, and now it's right at the minute, like for the interview, and he throws his hands up and says, Lord, if you give me a parking spot, 
I'll give up drinking tequila and I'll go to church, right? And miraculously, out of nowhere, a parking spot appears right in front of him. And so surely he pulls right into the spot and uh, throws his hands up and says, oh, never mind, God, I just found one. <laughs> never mind, God, I just found it. Isn't that just like us? Right? We make these amazing, bold declarations, and yet in the moment of our need, in the moment of our sadness maybe, in the moment of our solitude and our quietness and our depression, we succumb to the very things that we left. But what Christ does is he keeps coming back to us over and over again and calls us to follow him. And that is why Jesus asks, do you love me more than this? Love, my friends, is the starting point of everything, of our lives, of our ministry, and our service to God. And of course, I love the fact that Jesus asks Simon Peter three times, do you love me? Now, you might think, Lord, why? Just ask once. Do you love me more than these? And he gives you the answer, and then you move on, right? But I'm so glad, because if I was Peter, and if Jesus asked me only once, and I know in my heart I denied him three times, I would have walked away from that meeting with him and said, I know I confessed, and I, I re, he reinstated me for that one time, but I denied him three times. What about the other two times? And I love the fact that Jesus asks him, gives him the opportunity to make his confession, offers the reinstatement and the call, and then sends him out to mission. My friends, our response, Simon's answer, of course, is beautiful, right? He says, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, our response is rooted in authenticity and vulnerability, acknowledging that there's no corner of our heart and our intention that is hidden before God. All of it remains open and vulnerable before him, right? Everything remains open and vulnerable. And that's why, my friends, we can serve God only out of a loving heart. And sometimes when we read this story, so much of our minds immediately goes to awe. His answer, Lord, you know I love you, became the launching point for Jesus' commission. Go feed my sheep or take care of my lambs. And we might think his confession of his love was the launching point for his sending and his mission. I still remember my first year in seminary. I was in a class with Dr. Ruth Ann Reese. I don't know if she's here. And she asked a question, which has haunted me all these years since 2007. She asked, how do you see yourself in relationship to God? Do you remember? Have you been asked that question? And of course, I knew the right answer was the teacher's answer. And, uh, and everybody went around in a circle. I sat in the back. And the only answer that I could give in the honesty and vulnerability of my heart was, I am a servant of God. And I knew that answer was wrong. And I knew Ruth Ann Reese's answer was right. And of course, her answer was, I'm a beloved child of God, right? I am loved by God. And for some reason in my heart, I couldn't say that my primary identity is that I am loved by God. I could find myself in the surety of my identity as somebody who serves God. I've been preaching since I was 16, and I could gladly and boldly say, I am a servant of God. I go do all these things for God. And this is a very subtle mistake that we make sometimes, my friends. That yes, we deny Christ or we fall away, we go back to the little fishes that Jesus saved us from, and then Jesus comes and gives us an opportunity to be reinstated, and we make a confession of our love for him, and then he sends us out to mission. You know, problem, savior, you know, you know fixing of the problem, reinstatement, and go out and be a blessing. But my friends, we forget something. 
that no matter how much you do for God, our primary identity is not in how much we love God. This story is really about how much God loves us. How much he keeps chasing after us. So much of my life, my friends, I think serving God is motivated out of the Great Commission. Go make disciples. So we say, okay, it's out of obligation or out of obedience or some other factor. But the question that Jesus asks is, where is your love at? Where is your heart? Who has your heart? But if we zoom back, it's really about how God keeps wooing us. This wooing, this prone to wander hearts back to him. He comes to us, he finds us, he meets us, and he invites us back to himself. He cooks for us, he lights a fire to warm our warm and tired bodies and offers us fresh fish when there's a famine of fish in the land. And then he reiterates his call, follow me. That's why, my friends, we began... God does some of his greatest miracles under a cloak of failure in the moment of our rejection, and God uses that for his redemption. I have one final story before I close. Worship team, will you come up as we sing this song about love of God? A few years ago, Nicholas Kristof, who writes for the New York Times, did a story about his trip to Cambodia. He had been going to Cambodia, and he had been talking about... um, Uh, especially the uh, human trafficking, especially uh, in the brothels and the sexual slavery there. So he goes and he does a story. uh, He goes to Poipet, not Phnom Penh, which is a little bit away from the capital where they're they're even more emboldened in their uh, um, prostitution, if you may. And as he was walking down the street, he met a gal named Sri Nath. And Srinath reached out to him and offered him her services. And uh, he was looking for three things. He was looking for people who would be willing to share their story, who were in the brothels against their will, and who would, be, who would, be, who would receive the gift of freedom. And so he goes and meets with Srinath, and she tells him the story. Turns out her family sold her into the brothel because they had a debt. He finds out what the debt is. It was a measly $100. they sold this young gal into the brothels. So he goes in, he negotiates with the brothel owner, the mother, pays the $100, buys her freedom, and she is released. As he walks down the streets, he meets another gal, a teenager who who should not be there, but his heart goes out to her, and uh, her name is Srimam. So Srimam, again, he pays the mother of the brothel for a few minutes with Srimam, and interviews her and finds out her story, she owes $70. So he negotiates and says, okay, I'll pay the $70, I'll buy your freedom to get you out. So he negotiates with the brothel owner and they find out it's actually $400. So he negotiates and brings it down to $200. He pays the $200, buys her freedom, comes back to Srimam and says, you are free, you can go. And Srimam in that moment starts wailing and crying hysterically and she runs back into the brothel which she shares in one room with four other girls, she goes into the corner, starts wailing hysterically, shuts the door, bolts it, and says, I am not leaving, I don't want to go. And they ask her, why? Why don't you want to go? She says, I am not leaving without my cell phone. Turns out she had pawned her cell phone, and it will cost another 50 bucks to get her cell phone out. 
And Nick Kristoff says, there's no way I'm going to pay 50 bucks for that cell phone. You've got your freedom. You can leave. The mother of the brothel begs her, here's your chance. Leave. Her friends tell her, get out of here. What's your problem? Get out of here. It's just a silly cell phone. And she would not leave until Nick paid for the phone and got her freedom. And here's what he says, and I'll quote from the article. He says, I have purchased the freedom of two human beings so I can return them to their villages. But will emancipation help them? Will their families and villages accept them? Or will they, like some other girls rescued from sexual servitude, will find freedom so unsettling that they sink back to the slavery and the brothels? We will see. So it turns out at the end of the a year later, he writes another article about how Srinath, the first gal, uh, goes to vocational school, becomes a hairdresser, in fact, even cuts his hair. But Srimam, a year later, is back at the very brothels that she was rescued from. So here's my question, my friends. What is the cell phone that we keep going back to? What is your fish? Is it success? Is it ministry success? Is it fame? Is it money? What is it that you're after? And Jesus is asking, do you love me more than you love all these other things that I rescued you from? I gave you my life. I gave you all of me and I redeemed your life so that you can be a blessing to the world. But first, before you do anything, you just need to know that you are deeply loved by the Father. Will you pray with me? My friends, no matter how far we wander, his love keeps chasing after us. Father, we thank you for your wooing. We thank you for your relentless pursuit of our lives, that no matter how much we go back to, you keep coming after us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you restore us to yourself over and over again. So we gladly give you our lives. And in the vulnerability of our hearts, we say, Lord, you know that we love you.